Welcome to Pop Culture Retro, which was recently voted the 15th best podcast by the residents of the Golden Years Retirement Community in Boca Raton, Florida. Each show, we'll revisit some of your favorite pop culture memories with insider and outsider perspectives. Now, please help me welcome your hosts, Ike Eisenman and Jonathan Rosen. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Pop Culture Retro. I'm one of your hosts, Jonathan Rosen, along with Ike Eisenman. And today we are thrilled to welcome a Hollywood producer, historian, and award-winning author who has written such books as Dishing Hollywood, Hollywood Haunted, and her latest, Top of the Mountain, The Beatles at Shea Stadium, 1965. Please help us welcome Lori Jacobson. Lori, thanks so much for joining us. Ah, the screams of the crowd. Yes. So great to be with you. <laughs> oh, we are. We're screaming. Well, so to start with, I, re I read that you grew up in a creative family. Your mom was a painter. How about your dad? Was he very much into the arts as well? Um, no, not really. He was uh, a sportsman, I would say. Hmm. An athlete, a great athlete, my dad. Actually, hmm. uh, yeah, he um, and especially baseball. It, it was I'm from St. Louis and um, oh. he wanted to uh, be on the Cardinals so badly. <laughs> and he actually did get a contract. And the next day oh, he wow. got his draft notice. So oh, I know that was the end of that, which was too bad. But, um, you know, he was that close. Really? Did you so your mom kind of steered you into the arts? Um. You know, she gave my brother and me just a fabulous introduction to the arts. You know, I think I knew who the French Impressionists were before Dad taught us about the Three Stooges. <laughs> <laughs> so, and my parents both loved movies. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we often went to the movies together as a family mm -hmm. and... And uh, there were um, cast albums being played on Sundays. And uh, so I, I was aware uh, of entertainment on, on a lot of different levels because of their love of it. So, sounds like my house. We grew up with a lot of musicals all the time in the house. <laughs> Dad did that. So, but I also read that books were important to you. So what were some of your favorites? Of my books? Of books? No, of books in general, with growing up. Wow. Whoa. Well, you know, I really loved, I really still love Charles Dickens. I read a lot. My parents had a really nice uh, library, and uh, I loved English class at school. And um, Dickens, I, I kind of... Uh, I love the way he introduces you to a lot of characters and then brings them all together uh, for the big event, which is kind of what I did in Top of the Mountain. And um, uh, I, I, I'm not comparing myself in any way to Mr. Dickens, <laughs> but, uh, but he had a huge impact on me. Wow. Well, when did you start thinking you wanted to pursue a life in the arts? Um, oh, pr pretty much, uh, pretty much early on. I, I think I, I really remember, uh, you know, 
actually the Beatles when I was 10 um, just took over everything. And I thought, damn, I want to do, I want something like this, man. I want to wear clothes that people want to copy and I want to be on it. Yeah, that was, that was pretty much it. And also my dad's family lived in LA and we would go visit them and um it was so spectacular and they had pink houses there which they didn't have in st louis so that was very impressive and the <laughs> palm trees and my, my brother and i both decided early on la is the place for us we keep we keep hearing that from other guests <laughs> and the same thing happened to me as well when i moved to los angeles the palm trees seem to be the most overwhelming thing um that that we just could not believe you know we're 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 everywhere so that's that's some some sort of culture shock there but um who were some of your your other your other influences as you you know started this life oh well i should have thought i didn't know you were gonna go this way so i haven't <laughs> really uh you know i haven't really thought i i i don't know <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> <Good answer. laughs> so, I, I read, you you went into improv. It, it was taught by Harvey Lembeck, who was so great in the Beach movies, among many others. And your classmates included Robin Williams, John Ritter, and John Larroquette. So, what what was that atmosphere like? Can you tell us about Lembeck? And did anyone really stand out to you at that time? Well, Harvey was, you know, great. His um, his peers, which were uh, you know, Phil Foster, Gary Marshall, Buddy Hackett, uh, Jack Lemon. You know, a lot of pe people told him, you can't teach comedy, but you could. You know, you can't teach timing and certain things are a gift, but um, learned so much in improv with him. And then, you know, well, Robin, that was a that was a no-brainer. I mean, everybody who ever saw him before he was famous knew he was going to be huge. He just was so singular and also uh, so damn nice. Just a really great human being. Uh, really a sweet guy. So was Ritter. Ritter was really sweet. And I never uh, saw Ritter be as funny on television as he was in class really? you know when when he and robin got on stage together it was a whole different john ritter than you saw on three's mm. company um and and then they both surprised me when they went on to some incredible dramatic work um I think it was Edmund Gwynn on his deathbed said, dying is easy, comedy is hard. <laughs> so, you know, and La Roquette, he was a little bit older than, um, than we were and more experienced, which meant he slept with a lot of girls in the class, but not me. <laughs> but not me. He was... He was um, having issues with alcohol at the time, uh -huh. and his wife had thrown him out of the house. Uh -huh. He was um, sleeping in his car a lot at that time. It was really an incredible story, right? 
Um, and then he, uh, you know, got his act together and went back to his wife, who happened to be a, a successful casting director. Hmm. And uh, next thing you know, he's on Night Court and and poof. And um, boy, I he just took off. Right. And that's mm -hmm. everything. Emmys, Tony's, oh, yeah. you know, he's he's done a, so much. I'm still doing and it. Never looked back. Right. And never yes. looked back. Yeah. You know, the Ritter and and um Robin, they always came back to class. You know, it's a safe place where you could try stuff and make mistakes and and um try new things and just uh exercise your comedy muscle. You know, we never saw La Roquette again. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, speaking of comedy being hard, you also did stand up, which I always find incredible when anyone tries to do stand up. Um, what was your act like? Um, I had a lot of fun doing it. <laughs> um, I talked, I, I, it was like when punk was taking off. I talked about the Beatles, I talked about uh, the Sex Pistols. Um, and uh, just a, the different generation that we were moving into. Um, but, you know, there weren't a lot of ladies at the time doing it. And um, it was another whole category to get into. I was already enough unemployed as an actress. <laughs> so I didn't need another... Uh, <laughs> Another entertainment career where I wasn't getting hired. So, you know, what was a lot of 2 a.m., you know, 10 to 2, Boom. 10 minutes to 2 o'clock, you know, getting on stage in a smoke-filled room. Um, I enjoyed it. You know, a lot of guys and girls in um, Harvey's class came from stand-up. And I was a waitress at the comedy store. Um, mm. So I just thought, okay, I'll I'll give this a shot, and I enjoyed it, but I didn't do it that long. Did you mm. did you meet resistance from the male comics as well? Resistance, no, no, okay, no, just those horny those horny guys, no, no <laughs> resistance whatsoever. <laughs> comics really. I don't know uh, if I can say this, but comics, you know, often have a really hard time getting laid. So <laughs> no, if a girl was in the room, there was very little resistance. <laughs> but, we're, but we're probably jumping around a bit here. But, you know, so you you worked for the legendary producer, Jack Haley Jr. You were the head uh, of development. How did you come into that? And, and what was Jack Haley like? And what were some of your responsibilities? Um. When I met him, he was producing a television show, a magazine style show called Photoplay, which was based on the popular magazine of the 20s and 30s. And um, my first book had just come out, which was called Hollywood Heartbreak. And I came to his attention and he invited me to write for Photoplay, um, which was just a great education for me, right, suddenly writing for television. Um, and we would do six minute segments on uh, some aspect of Hollywood history. And 
you know, I, I loved that's entertainment. Um, that was the penultimate film for me on Hollywood history. And he was walking Hollywood history. He had an incredible memory for everything he'd ever seen, um, which he could recall. And he knew everybody between his parents (laughs) introducing him to everyone they knew. And then, oh my gosh, you know, and he was dating Nancy Sinatra. So Frank was a phone call away. It was (laughs) awesome. It was really great. So I worked on that show. And when that show ended, um, I, I, was lucky enough to uh, go go on with him to his office, and we worked on just fabulous projects. Um, I I met really everyone except Fred Astaire through through. That was my one the one that got away. But <laughs> I mean, to, really, to walk into the office and have you know Debbie Reynolds or. Uh, Paul Newman or, you know, whoever was sitting there, um, Clint Eastwood, Burt Reynolds, just all kinds of people. And then, you know, at the events that we worked on to go and meet the Nicholas Mm -hmm. brothers, that was such a thrill for me. And, um, oh, just, you know, all Ginger Rogers. Um, it was, it was super, uh, the best thing we did together, um, or rather, well, there were two projects that I really adored. One was the 20th anniversary of the Mary Tyler Moore show. You can ask about that, right. That was amazing. Um, and, and it, it was a, uh, it was actually the first time the whole cast had been together since the death of, uh, Ted Knight. Mm-hmm. So um, th- there was a lot of emotion there, and um, they they were all incredibly professional, lovely, kind people, and that was a great experience. And well, how were you feeling during this time? That you're in charge now, this like legendary cast in such an iconic show that you know you're responsible for getting this whole thing together. How how was that for you? Um. You know, during the actual shoot, uh, a lot of women on the crew uh, would come up to me and say, wow, you're a producer on this show. That's amazing. And I I didn't realize, you know, that I didn't realize that there weren't a lot of other women at that time doing it. And I and that's probably good that I didn't realize that, (laughs) Um, you know, Jack was was great to work with um jack loved women his office was mostly women so um i i never felt uh you know any misogynistic crap going on there (laughs) he was great um and uh i'll tell you this story um that i'll never forget uh you know, Mary had, um, who was incredibly kind, um, she brought the hat that she threw in the air (laughs) and she brought the M that hung on the wall of her apartment on the show. And uh, her husband was on the set also and he told me 
a, that she had uh, auctioned off the M for charity to raise money for charity. And he bid $10,000 on it to get it back. And here it is, and we're holding it. And it's so fabulous. And we're about to shoot the closing, uh, re the closing segment of the show, which was just Mary. And the rest of the cast had gone home and she was changing um, for that segment. And the prop guy dropped the M oh, and, it smashed, and it smashed mm -hmm. into like, 20 pieces oh, oh my God. lord Jeez. yes yes that's what we're all like we just froze <laughs> and i felt so sorry for that guy and we thought you know he went off and tried he glued it together but was really obvious that it was broken oh <laughs> well, and we oh. and you know and jack was jack who was directing it we he just was like oh my god if we tell her we we may never get the closing segment. So we all made a pact not to tell her. And now we're all complicit, right? Oh. I could barely look her oh. in the eye when I had to go, you know, go to her dressing room to get her. And she walked out on the set and she took one look at the M. And we all, oh my God. You could have heard a pin drop, literally. Oh and um, she just turned around and said, uh, excuse me. And she went back to her dressing room. And we all were just feeling so terrible. And 15 minutes later, she came out completely composed and said, let's get this last shot. And I thought, wow, what a dame. <laughs> Oh my God, that is absolutely incredible. She was um, really, an, and she never said, you know, so many others would have and could have, who was responsible and I yeah. won his head on a platter. And <laughs> no, she she took her moment to grieve over it. And then she came back, back out a complete professional and did what she needed to do. Uh. God, well, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, so uh, at, at what point did your deep interest in Hollywood history become serious enough that you wanted to start writing about it? Um, <laughs> okay, I'll tell you the real story. Well, of course, you know, I, I love Hollywood history. It's what made me want to move to LA in the first place. And, um, you know, back in, in when I was growing up, we didn't have cable and a hundred different channels. There was the late show and then the late, late show. And all they showed was Cagney and Harlow and Judy Garland and Hepburn and Tracy. And, you know, I knew and I knew who all those people were and loved them. And so when I got to L.A. Uh, in the 70s, it wasn't really that that long ago. I mean, you know, Betty Davis is still walking around and you could see some of these big stars. And, uh, you know, Schwab's drugstore was still there and I would go there and Shelley Winters was there and 
you know, people I recognized from 77 Sunset Strip and, you know, and so it was very exciting. And then the waiters and waitresses and the maitre d's, they were all the same people that had waited on these people. And, you know, back in the day, people held their jobs for 40 years, mm. you know, and as the guards at the studio gate, and they were all very willing to tell their stories, you know, so you'd, you'd be at, at Musso's and they'd say, you know, Chap, that's Chaplin's favorite booth. What? You know, it was like, <laughs> whoa. And you, so that was really thrilling. So I would get these stories and I would repeat them at, at parties with my <laughs> friends. And everybody was like, really? Whoa. And pretty soon I could tell the difference between what was studio publicity and what was really happening there and how things were covered up and names were changed. And, um, uh, you know, and that's when I, and, and also people, uh, there was such tragedy amongst the success and you couldn't make up stuff better than what was happening in real life these these cliffhanger stories and um and so that's that's i started writing all this stuff down and mm. eventually my notes grew you know people kept saying you need to write a book you need to write a book so i did <laughs> <laughs> well, well let's talk about your book so now let's you know so you cover some fascinating material throughout all of them. I, I was some I read, some I glanced through this this past uh, couple of weeks. So I love Hollywood history as well. And your first book, Hollywood Heartbreak, talked about the deaths of many celebrities, including you have about Alfalfa, F. Scott Fitzgerald, John Belushi, etc. But among the stories in there, you also have you know Peg Entwistle, you know William Desmond Taylor, and Thelma Todd. Would like to ask a little bit about them. Entwistle is a little bit more famous, but. William Desmond Taylor and Thelma Todd aren't as commonly known, and all of their deaths are kind of shrouded in mystery. So being a Hollywood historian, can you tell us about them and for those who don't know about their deaths and what you learned about them? Um, sure. William Desmond Taylor was a top director in the 20s. You know, he directed the big stars, Mary Pickford uh, and... Um, a lovely little ingenue named Mary Miles Mentor. Um, so, you know, cut to the cut to the chase, William Desmond Taylor is found shot to death in his Tony uh, apartment on Alvarado, which was a very hot neighborhood at the time. And um and by the time the police are called, and this is still true today. <laughs> the police are the last people that you call. The first people <laughs> that you call are the studio and, and or not today the stars representatives. And oh. they, by the time the cops got to William Desmond Taylor's house, it was loaded with people who were carrying out, this was during prohibition. So they're carrying out the illegal booze. Oh they are oh. burning burning letters and things in the <laughs> and papers in the fireplace you know they thought um 
he they they didn't even know he had been shot until they turned him over and then who killed william desmond taylor and then they find out he wasn't really william desmond taylor he you know he he was william dean tanner who had abandoned a wife and child in new york and made his way across the country changed his name had this fabulous career he had started as an actor and uh the wife he dumped in New York saw him on the screen and followed him out there there and found him. And then they find checks that were being written monthly to this daughter. And nobody knew this. Nobody mm -hmm. knew this about him. He was a highly respected uh, director at Paramount. And uh, th so this was just stunning news. And um, he was very dear friends with Mabel Normand, mm -hmm. who was the leading screen comedian at the time, female comedian. And um, she was the last person to see him alive, uh, mm -hmm. except for the murderer. Um, and he and and one of the aforementioned Mary Miles Minter, who was way young and quite beautiful. Um, and, and had a ruthless, ruthless stage mother. Uh, Mary Miles Minter was madly in love with him. And uh, they, they, for a while, they suspected that the murderer was her mother. And there were checks being written from her account to the district yeah. attorney. Oh, you know, for years and years and years. Oh, the story is so complex. Right. Um, uh, and they, they're still not really sure who did it. It really right. looked like Mary Miles Minter's mother did it. And that's what I believed when I wrote the book. Um, but recently, I guess in the last 10 years, this marvelous book called Tinseltown came out and they think it was someone else mm -hmm. uh and, and they had a really strong argument and you know somewhere i think in the 70s or 80s um there was a an, oh, an elderly woman who had been a silent screen actress um who had a heart attack at home in Beechwood Canyon and her, her dying words were, I killed William Desmond Taylor. What, and <laughs> like the, the people didn't even know who she was talking about. You know? So, um, so that, that's part of the Tinseltown story, uh, but it's a really fascinating story. And the, the thing about that murder is that, um, the Fatty Arbuckle scandal was around the same time. And then the death of this gorgeous actor named uh, Wallace Reed. Um, they were all Paramount celebrities. They all, uh, Wallace Reed died from drugs, but the drugs had been given to him. Um, he was traveling to a location by train 
and with the cast and crew of this film and the train wrecked and he was terribly injured but there they were at the location and gee we only need to be here for three weeks so we'll just give him a lot of morphine to get through the shoot and then he came home and he couldn't get off of it and uh and it was uh the first time that drug addiction was looked at as an illness when the he was wildly popular <laughs> and um when people heard the story that it wasn't by choice that he uh entered into a drug life that it was foisted upon him and, and no one helped him i mean they just kept him on a treadmill of films while he was physically wasting away and you could see it. They And then he collapsed on the set and they actually propped him up to get that last shot before they took him away to the sanitarium. When all of this became public um, and his wife went to Washington DC and um, spoke to Congress about, oh, it was really, that's another, I mean, like I said, you can't make up stuff better than this. So Paramount was really uh, in trouble. They almost went under with all of the, these scandals. And the Midwest, of course, freaked out and all these religious groups, you know, boycotted all these people's films. It ruined Mabel Norman's career, even though she had not, nothing to do with any of it um it wow it was just really really an amazing, amazing. time <laughs> really and then <laughs> you asked about Thelma Todd um who was an adorable beauty contest winner and a wonderful comedian and she worked with the great great comics of her day um including the Marx Brothers and Harold Lloyd and um, all kinds of wonderful people. Uh, and she had her own series of short comedies. Um, she was with Hal Roach, who did short comedies, um, Laurel and Hardy, um, uh, The Little Rascals, and <laughs> Thelma had her own series. And um, But Thelma was a really bad shopper when it came to men. Um, you know, she married a guy who was kind of uh, a low-level mobster, and um, when she got rid of him, uh, she she uh, was living with a director named Roland West uh, out on Pacific Coast Highway, and um, they were on the outs. And she attended a party in her honor at the Trocadero one night. And um, basically he said, you're home at two o'clock or don't come home. And she strolled in around four and was locked out. And a lot of and, uh, people heard her pounding on the door and there were kick marks and he wasn't letting her in. So she walked up the hill to where she parked her beautiful Phaeton convertible. And she probably said, the hell with you, I'm going to another party, you know? 
you won't let me in? I'm out of here. So she goes up to her car and I think he followed her there. And when she, and she was drunk and, and um, she started the car and he closed the garage. You're not going anywhere. And if you, you know, you have to remember that the garages were only big enough to hold the car a very small area and you know we didn't have smog control then so it it probably took three minutes before she was unconscious and you know 10 minutes before she was dead and he opens the garage and oh no so uh, he closes the garage and goes back home and fakes everything. And um, <laughs> they had a nightclub up, up above. They had a restaurant in the building that they owned on Pacific Coast Highway. And she was opening a nightclub on the top floor. And rumors had it that um, a gangster wanted in on the money she was making. And... and she and that she had said no and you don't say no to the mob and everyone thought that her you know so so there were wild rumors about how she really really died and uh, nobody knew um until years and years later uh when roland west died and he confessed on his deathbed to a friend and and that friend never told until he died and then he confessed it and um because roland west was in a um a, a fraud scheme with joe skank who was head of 20th century fox and oh it, it again you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> I love you know, hearing Skank, this. Skank said, "I'll protect you if you don't if you don't testify against me in the fraud." It just went on and on, and and another you know Hollywood mystery. Mm. Wow. Well, which leads us into your next book, All These Things, which which I started reading last week, and I love ghost stories. I write spooky stories myself, so whenever I go somewhere, I visit haunted places, take the ghost tours. Your book, Hollywood Haunted, A Ghostly Tour of Filmland, is so good. It starts right off with a question that we were going to ask, and you answer it in the first few pages. You have encountered ghosts while researching this. So can you tell us about some of your own experiences? Sure. Well, that and that's what um, started me on the book. We were, I was in a um, historical society, and we were going to give a tour of Hollywood's grand movie palaces uh, on Hollywood Boulevard. So of course, Grauman's <laughs> Chinese theater was amongst those. And I went there early one morning, uh, like at 8 a.m. with five other uh, historians, maybe four, I can't remember. But um, this uh, employee was giving us a tour of the theater. And really, we were there to see where we were going to place our guides and what we were going to say about the theater. And she was telling us really cool stuff about the theater, um, like um, Sid Grauman, 
uh, you know, there were many premieres there. And after the premieres with all the stars, he didn't want to bring them to his messy office for drinks. So he actually had this little cocktail area built inside a wall. So you pushed a button and the wall opened and there, you know, and he would, after everybody left the theater, he would entertain the celebrities in there, which I, which had been sealed up, but like, Ooh, we were getting all these great stories. And she explained in the main auditorium that before uh, the film, there was a live stage show. So the stage was quite enormous and it held up to 200 actors and um did, did she said now the movie screen is much larger than it was back in those days would any of you like to go behind the music the the movie screen and i was the only one that wanted to i was like when is <laughs> when am i gonna get this opportunity again so there was a ladder uh, up against the front of the stage that you had to climb up and then you were like on your knees on the stage. And, um, and I went behind the movie screen and I was hoping I'd find, you know, some initials on the wall or something <laughs> exciting, but no, you know, it was like toilet paper and light bulbs and um, nothing big. And I, um, came back to the stage and I climbed down that awkward ladder and hmm. I walked back to them in the middle of the auditorium and I, out of nowhere the the guide says this place is so haunted and nobody said anything but we were all compelled <laughs> to look back at the stage where I had been standing and there was a ceiling to floor velvet drape and someone unseen who was standing on the stage had grasped the drape. And we could see the handprints and that section only was lifted up off the ground and was shaking very angrily. And, you know, it wasn't blowing in the wind. There were no doors or windows back there and nobody else was in the theater and, um, I was scared and we all left <laughs> very, very quickly. You know, the anger was so intense. And she told us that um, there had been an employee in the theater uh, whose name was Fritz and he had taken his life in the theater behind the movie screen. Oh. <laughs> he hung he hanged himself back oh my there. Gosh. <laughs> I know. And she didn't know when, um, but she said Fritz's spirit was all around the theater and that in that little uh, hidden cocktail area room, um, they, they often heard the buzzer being pressed from inside, you know, and it was sealed off. So nobody <laughs> could get in there. Um, you know what the women employees said they all felt like somebody was spying on them uh in their locker room um and i you know when you choose a public area to kill yourself it's right. it's your spot you know it had some kind of significance for you and the anger i think he let me know that he did not like 
me going back to his spot. That's what I was uh, going to say. He didn't want oh, you back there. No, he didn't. Oh I was God. not about to argue with him. Either. <laughs> oh, man, I don't blame you. Will any other um, like frightening experiences like that while you were working on this? Well, so that started me. You know, I'd been collecting ghost stories and there. You know, there were always ghost stories attached to people who died before their time, whether it was an accident or an unsolved murder. Um, and that ghosts stick around for, you know, very human reasons. You know, if they if they were uh, murdered and it was never solved, they want justice or they want revenge. And it all started to make a lot of sense to me. So I grabbed a couple of psychics and some parapsychologists and off we went to to many of these places I had kept notes on and then you know all of Hollywood just opened up the Hollywood Athletic Club and um, um, you know people called us I mean I I saw the most horrible hotels and the most divine homes in Bel Air you know it just ran the gamut and um and yes, we were, I never saw a ghost, but I experienced, you know, noises and coins falling from the ceiling and um, smells, uh, really old fashioned perfumes, heavy flowery perfumes, mm -hmm. um, alarms going off, um, also really putrid smells that mm. you know could come and go in five seconds um when we'd ask for proof that you were there boom putrid putrid smells and then gone immediately gone no windows no doors no ventilation you know so uh, and and then i learned to walk through areas more slowly uh, that I could feel, um, you know, I, I felt pressure when a spirit was present. Um, hmm. like I was submerged a little bit hmm. and, uh, you know, in cold spots and things like that. But if you're walking at your usual pace, you don't really uh, notice you know, but in these places where I was, so then it became apparent to me that I, I could walk into a room and, whoa, what's in here? You know, I, I immediately felt that feeling. So it's kind of fun. <laughs> it, sure, it sounds like it to me. So if you have to, what, what, what would you say is the most haunted place in, in Hollywood and what's the story behind mm. it? Hard to say, you know, I worked at the comedy store and that place was loaded with ghosts, okay? <laughs> Just loaded wow. with them. And we experience stuff there, you know, all, all day. And then late at night after the crowds left, um, a lot of acting out and acting up and ashtrays flying through the air and... Um, voices uh old-timey 
voices with you know using old expressions that guy two time me he's such a heel whoa <laughs> you know and other people saw like gangstery type people um you know when a club is that popular the mob uh wants huh. a piece of it so we think you know people got hurt there huh. um and also you know oh the hollywood palace um you know, people return to a place that they loved, too. So we would see people in, you know, well, they, the their employees saw people in tuxedos and old clothes. And um, when the balcony was closed, they would hear voices up there and sometimes see older couples sitting there. Um, and I think, you know, people return to places that meant a lot to them or where they had the best time of their life. Um, you know, Cielo Drive, uh, at the top of which uh, uh, Sharon Tate and her friends were murdered. I mean, I, I just pull onto that street. I don't even make it up all the way. And I feel- Feel something. Uh, uh, yeah, and, and cold water is, cold water canyon is just, um, there were there were a lot of weird uh, deaths there, and um, I think there's and, and so the we were, when we look you know George Reeves had we a serious death <laughs> there and um, um, Jay Sebring who was killed with Sharon um, his home was. Uh, was the former home of Gene Harlow and Paul Byrne and Paul Byrne took his life there. And that was mm -hmm. like right down the road from Valentino's house. Mm -hmm. And although he didn't die there, he uh, was ex extremely despondent in that home. And then um, it was purchased by Doris Duke, the tobacco heiress and she died there and nobody really knows if it was a natural death or if well, her caregiver uh, hurried things along. So, you know, there's, and then at the base of um, Coldwater, uh, when they were um, building, uh, developing the area, they found um, the graves of some Native Americans, and apparently there was some kind of massacre there. Oh so, God. you know, what the hell is going on in Coldwater Canyon? I don't know. You know, Monty Clift had that horrible uh, car accident there. It's there's a lot of weird stuff in Coldwater. So that so it begs the question: Which came first? Was that energy always there, and it attracted some very negative things, or did did that energy come from the negative things that happened there? Well, I'm well, glad I didn't know about this because I would have avoided driving Coldwater Canyon the thousands of times I did when I lived in LA. Uh, that's amazing. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, we the, do, property, I, the property uh, price is just plummeted. <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe the opposite, actually. So, <laughs> but your, your next book, which I was looking through in anticipation of you coming on, The Dishing Hollywood, The Real Scoop Behind Tinseltown's Most Notorious Scandals. Each story is accompanied by a recipe. So before we get into some of the stories, what made you decide to do it that way? Well, I had some new information about some of the people that I had already written about, and I was looking for a, a new um, format to write about them again. And, um, and and there were some people that I haven't written about before that I really want, and, that were um, maligned in many other books. Um, that and I wanted to set the record straight for them, uh, and so, so you know, and some of them uh, were around food, and you know, like Mama Cass was one of the people that I wrote about, and like there was no damn ham sandwich. That was just a horribly rude remark made by some jerk doctor and you know she died of something we didn't know about then called sleep apnea uh, uh, she had a sleep apnea induced heart attack and she it wasn't because she was eating in bed and stuffing her face um so and she was the loveliest person and much beloved not only in her own community but you know she had millions of fans and i just couldn't let stuff like that stand so there were a few other people in the book i you know poor lupe velez you know did not die uh as kenneth anger said face down in the toilet uh vomiting from an overdose of pills no you know she that that and that is her legacy and she was uh you know, also a very, very popular comedian in her day, a beautiful lady um, with some great lovers. Ooh, that, that, girl, <laughs> that girl got around. So, you know, so I had, there were stories I had to correct. And, you know, Kenneth Anger had said she was eating this big Mexican meal and it didn't mix with the pills that she took. And that's why she was rushing to the bathroom to throw up and tripped and fell into the, you know, so there was always, there were food involved in many of these stories. So I thought, well, that's the way to go. <laughs> With the recipes. Well, you just mentioned George Reeves. I mean, that his murder, murder, but his thing is death is still suspect, you know, that they still don't know for sure what happened. So what, what can you tell us about him? Murder. Do you think it's murder? Red rum. Yes. <laughs> <clears throat> yes. And I was really fortunate. My friend, um, Catherine Lee Scott from Dark Shadows, um, got me into his house uh not that long ago as i'd always you know the people that live there said you know they're just besieged with fans you know they look up and someone's standing in in the window can we come in and um they don't want to disrespect george reeves in that way which i found really uh uh 
charming and an anomaly in today's Hollywood where other people would be selling tickets. Um, and he did haunt that house for quite some time, but uh, I, I went with a parapsychologist and we felt absolutely nothing. And I feel like he's gone now. Um, but, you know, the autopsy alone uh, tells the story. He was shot in the head and the gun was a minimum of 12 inches away. Hmm. And, and at an angle like this, you know, so who kills themselves like that? But if you're struggling with someone who has a gun, that's, that's the position you're in. So, uh, you know, he was just about to get married and he uh, had a lot of things on his agenda that he was looking forward to. And, you know, they just, he was not depressed. Uh, so, you know, he slept with a lot of ladies and, um, you know, there were some cuckolded husbands <laughs> that um, may have been responsible, that has never been solved. And, you know, when, you know, somebody fooled with his car weeks before, cut the brakes, his dog was stolen, you know, that he and the lady he was, ha the married woman he was having an affair with were, were getting a lot of, um, phone calls where when you answered they hung up like they're checking on when you're home and when you're not so it, it was very suspicious so what i have learned from all of these stories is that when uh, a crime in hollywood or beverly hills um is unsolved it's because somebody paid a lot of money to keep it that way sure Especially wow. when you have so many clues pointing right. to the fact that it was clearly murder. <laughs> wow. Well, if we could talk about the Black Dahlia case and Elizabeth Short, this is still one of Hollywood's most infamous murders. And she's in the book. But what are some of the, the latest findings on her? Okay, well, there are not many people agree with me, but... Um, uh, and they think poor Elizabeth Short. And of course, you know, her death was absolutely horrific. But um, I befriended a woman. Um, and she and I are quite convinced that it was her father who killed Elizabeth Short. And um, they were both from the same area in Massachusetts. And they both uh, moved across the country to California around the same time. And my friend said that wherever they stopped along the way, a woman was murdered. And she believed that her father was a serial killer who was hmm. murdering women that uh, basically looked like his wife, um, all across the country. And she was often used, when the father got to um, California, he was a low level runner for the mob. Um, 
when gambling boats were still existed seven miles off Long Beach uh, Harbor. Um, if you were seven miles out, you could gamble and then somebody had to take that money to the, you know, to the right people. So her father ran errands like that for the mob. And um, he often used his daughter uh, to attract women. You know, a man with a little girl walking on the beach, uh, you tend to trust. Um, and she said, then daddy and the woman would walk away and only daddy would come back. Um, and she told me that, oh, she told me that uh, Elizabeth Short and her father um, ran a pedophile ring together mm. in Hollywood on Hawthorne Avenue, just off La Brea. And they used her and her sister, and I don't know who else. She only uh, remembered what happened to her with her Aunt Betty. And um, she said she once she was uh, there and a policeman came to the door and she thought, at last I'm going to be saved. And then, you know, he had sex with her and Aunt Betty. Uh, it was a pretty graphic and horrible story. So um, Aunt Betty uh, ends up pregnant. I'm not sure. Nobody's sure by whom could have been any number of people. And um, she shows up at my friend's house seeking help from her father. And her mother went ballistic. You know, at this point, Betty was uh, manic. And the wife comes home and finds Betty in the bathtub of the house. And she's screaming at her husband, get your girl out of here. So he takes her to the garage where, long story short, um, he murders her. Uh, and in front of his daughter, who had a very graphic description of the murder, which is in the book. And then they spent the evening driving around trying to get rid of the body. And um, they tried several locations until he ended up on the, the field where she was found. And, um, you know, he, uh, as he's slicing and dicing, uh, while this poor child is looking on, he's telling her, if you tell anyone, the same thing will happen to you. And already horrific things had happened to her. So uh, she, you know, and then she goes to school and the next day, uh, you know, I can't even imagine. I can't sure. even imagine. So um I always forget his name. Who's the brilliant author who wrote Severed? Um, he's very dark. If I turn around, I could look at his book. But um, <laughs> he felt he felt his mother. Uh, well, his mother was murdered when he he was ten, and um, he wrote about the Black Dahlia, 
Um, the there was a police sketch of the man last seen with this author's mother. Red hair, just like all of all of uh, this guy's victims. Um, and so they're doing a story on it years and years later uh, in the LA Weekly. And my friend Jan is walking down uh, the street and sees the LA Weekly and sees a sketch of her dad. Oh. What's <laughs> dad doing on the LA? And it's, you know, the man last seen with this author's dead mother. And um, there, I have the sketch in the book and I wow. have George Knowlton's picture in the book and it's clearly the same <laughs> man. So um, that, but, she, but she wrote to that author and he, you know, told her no way, but way. And Jan was also co contacted by um, retired LA cops who, uh, you know, the Black Dahlia was unsolved for decades. And um, it kept getting handed down to new cops and new cops. And mm -hmm. these retired cops called her and said, we were told this, this case is now yours. You are not to solve it. Wow. <laughs> you are to put it in a drawer. And they, and they told her your father was high on the list of suspects. And this was not your imagination and you're not crazy. And it's because there were some very well-known and very wealthy men that were customers in the pedophile ring. Hmm. And they were not to be revealed. And so the cops protected them and, hmm. uh, and hmm. her murder is never solved. The author is John Gilmore. John Gilmore. Is the author? Is the author that I saw just looked up? Okay, Severed. that doesn't sound right, but I don't know. That's what it says here. But uh, let's, okay. let's get to, to a lighter topic. Yeah, <laughs> that <laughs> one's pretty dark. That <laughs> one's very dark. Well, you're, you're married to John Provost, who, who played Timmy on Lassie. <laughs> oh boy! All, big right. switch. Big switch. Big switch. <laughs> First of all, how did you two meet? Um. We met at uh, an autograph show in 1996 and um, Chip from My Three Sons, Stan Livingston, introduced us. Hmm. So we're very grateful to him. And, uh, you know, it was it was uh, kind of instant attraction. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah. listen and, and and you both collaborated on his life story called uh timmy's in the well now myself as someone who grew up in the public eye and i had my own memoir being shopped um it was fascinating for me to go over my own life and career in in, in that way what was it like for for you and john to go back and revisit his time in the industry 
Uh, really fascinating. And, you know, he could only look at his time in the industry through a child's eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I my gosh, I'm so glad to hear you say that because that was the perspective I took when I wrote my story. I said, I, I you know, I was a child I experiencing this as a child and I want to relate it as a child so people can understand what it's like to be a child in the industry. So anyway, yes. sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but no, not at all. Go ahead. No. Go ahead. But, yeah. you know, when I entered interviewed a lot of the adults in his life um you know he got a whole other story about it Mm. and what you know there was a there were other layers going on that he knew nothing about of course and was really stunned and also within his own family um the jealousy uh the the anger you know there was a lot of jealousy and anger from his brother. There was a lot of pride and joy from his sister. Mm. Um, uh, you know, their their mother made a choice of where she wanted to be on the set with John in Japan with John. Uh, you know, so the brother who was the oldest one, um, you know, where's, you know, they actually everybody was where's mom um you know and some older woman is brought in to you know greet them after school and make dinner and um you know and they're gone for weeks or months or uh you know they slept they lived in Pasadena and Pomona so they John and his mom stayed in Hollywood during the week and only came home on weekends and Hmm. Um, until they all moved to Beverly Hills. And, uh, you know, so it, there was a lot of, uh, you know, and a lot of, at that time, his mother handled the the um, fan mail and she put their own address on, on the return oh, envelopes, oh no, you know, oh because it was an innocent time and you didn't yeah. really have to worry. And so people showed up at their door. You know, people showed up at their door and left their children there for days at a time. I want my daughter to meet Timmy, you know, and um, they were, you know, the house was often filled with strangers. So there was a lack of attention to the other children that caused all kinds of issues um, that last a lifetime, you know, and John didn't even know, you know, he's working. He was little and too busy to to understand you know the feelings of being usurped uh you know going on in his house so when it all came together it was really uh really an interesting story and he learned so much Mm. beyond his personal experiences sure so is that is that writing that is that what Mm -hmm. led you to do the next one the the child stars about the uh tv dinners 40 classic tv kid stars um, you know, what led me to that was I hadn't had a book out in a long time. And I looked <laughs> around and said, what have I got a lot of in my life? And <laughs> friends who were kid stars and um, they were all so lovely to uh, give me their stories and cooperate, you know, because they got nothing from it, <laughs> except <laughs> some more exposure. 
but um, just it was so much fun, so much fun to talk to them about uh, their experiences. Of course, I interviewed a number of them for John's book, but then I went to a bunch of more people and got wonderful stories and photos. And the thing I love about about that book is um, and the thing I love about that generation is that they have all remained friends, you know, mm. for 50 years. Many of these people have known each other that long. And they all stayed friends with the people who played their parents. They all stayed friends with each other. And so the pictures of them at party, birthday parties and stuff goes on through the ages, you know, where Angela Cartwright is, you know, five years old Ronnie Howard is five years old at John's birthday parties and and then you see them as adults together and through the ages I it's something really really special about um, the golden age of television mm. well when you were interviewing them did you mostly get a sense of appreciate of appreciation for their time in the business or or a bitterness at how the industry has treated them um there are only a few who are are bitter mm. but most absolutely love their time there you know some were were not treated well sure. um and that that's really hard really hard uh but um most of the people I spoke to um, had a really positive experience. That's great. Mm. Uh, let's talk about your current book. It just came out at the end of last year. Top of the Mountain, the Beatles at Shea Stadium, 1965. That is such a legendary event. Uh, we had on Felix Cavalieri from the Rascals who talked about that experience. Have you always been a huge Beatles fan, for one? Oh, yeah. With you being a Hollywood historian, this is like kind of a slight departure for you. So what made you decide to write about that particular event? Um, well, Sid Bernstein is the gentleman who produced the event and uh, a friend of his F, um, told me the whole story of how Sid made it happen and all the details of uh, what went into making this legendary concert come off. And the story was so fabulous. And it's just not out there. Even Sid in his autobiography, he, he dedicates maybe 10, 12 pages to the story when it, it was this incredible story that could never happen this way again. So I thought I got to tell this story. And, and uh, so I had Sid's story. And then I needed other perspectives. So uh, then I just started looking for people who were at the concert, um, people who were in the opening acts, uh, people who were in security, uh, you know, just uh, all kinds of uh, all kinds of participants. And and then the participants ended up being amazing. Like Meryl Streep was there, 16. <laughs> You know, Whoopi Goldberg is there, nine years old. Steve Van Zandt, Joe Walsh, two future Beatle wives. And what are the chances of that? You know, oh my it, was God. Just, it, it just went on and on. 
and uh, and 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 all of these people. I mean, it was such a, a momentous occasion for all of them, you know, and Felix and Mick Jagger and, and all all these people were so happy to relive it. Hmm. But so so much has been discussed about that concert. What what makes it still stand out to this day that it's like this legendary thing? Um, because it changed everything. Uh, nobody had ever, there had been smaller stadium concerts, but no one had ever played to 56,000 people before. In fact, the Beatles manager, Brian Epstein, said no when Sid approached him. No, what if we don't sell it out? What if there are empty seats? At this point in 64, when Sid had got the plan, there were still people saying the Beatles will never last. They're just a passing fad. You know, they'll be bald soon and it'll all be over. Um, and so he said, if there are empty seats, uh, all these naysayers will will be fueled. So he said no. And Sid, you know, basically made him an offer he couldn't refuse. So he agreed. And Sid was the only one, the sole person with <laughs> the vision that he knew this place would be sold out. And he was so right. It, and it, he oversold the stadium. Mm. Um, so that became you know after that stadium concerts were all you saw and <laughs> technology woke up the next morning and said we failed nobody could see them nobody <laughs> could hear them um and and if this is what's gonna gonna be coming at us uh we gotta we gotta get better fast and when when you think four years later there was woodstock they did get ready real <laughs> fast um uh, Madison Avenue realized that this wasn't a passing fad and that there were millions of kids that they could be selling products to that they weren't addressing. You know, pimple cream was about the extent of it. So that, you know, it changed that. Men's uh, barbershops were out. Men's hairstyling was in. <laughs> Um, and also, you know, 56,000 rock and roll fans had never laid eyes on each other before to see, you know, you heard that, you know, uh, that other countries love the Beatles, too. But here you felt it. Mm. I mean, you felt it, what it was like to be be with that. You know, it was life changing. The the people in the opening acts that I spoke to said, you know, when they got on that stage, it it really, it changed their lives. Yeah. Uh, I was reading it and it's just like you said, you have so much material in there. I mean, just incredibly fascinating. How long did it take you to research this and, and complete the book? Um, I, I worked on it really seven years. Wow. I mean, there were times where I laid it down um, and uh, and then came back to it. But I was tracking people all that time and interviewing people and um, uh, and and then finding amazing photos 
you know, one of the people uh, that was in one of the opening acts, um, she said, well, my dad uh, came with me that night and he took 80 color slides oh. and we looked oh. at them one color and we looked wow. at them once and we put them in the drawer and they're still in the drawer. Would you like them? Um, <laughs> yeah, that would be great. <laughs> and there were other people like that, that, you know, sneaked one guy sneaked onto the field, took 60 photos from the edge of the stage. Um, one of which is the cover of the book. Um, another gentleman sneaked into the bowels of the stadium and when he oh. found an unlocked door and he opened it, he was in their dressing room. Oh my God. <laughs> and he thought, well, I can't close the door now. I'll just, and there were like five other people in there, you know? So he just uh, slipped in and <laughs> now, snap you know so it was amazing to be to suddenly it was just I got all these personal stories and you know and DJs and you know it was and and then to be able to say I have a couple of hundred photos that nobody has ever seen it, I, right. I was amazed how could <laughs> oh. that happen hasn't everything been said <laughs> That's incredible. But no, um, it hadn't been. And I it, learned so much about them. And, oh, yeah. Well, I just, when I, I, that was really, I just loved the experience. Well, and it was so unexpected. Well, it, in speaking to people about it, was it one of those things where you ended up finding a couple hundred thousand people all claiming to be there that night? <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't speak to that many, but... Um, no, and some, you know, some people, many people had pictures. Some were just wonderful instamatic shots from way up, you know, but it was a great perspective. So you could see what they saw, little ants on a tiny stage, you know. Um, <laughs> and uh, there was a documentary shot that night and some of them show up in the documentary in the crowd. So, um, <laughs> you know, it, it, so it was, it, it was really, really fun. Well, I was fun reading the descriptions. Well, that you're looking to get this made into a, into a series. So what's the status for that? Um, I'm looking for that. Yeah, uh, you know, a little mini series, eight parter, um, would be so much fun because there were so many hoops Sid had to jump through. Uh, you know, the city, the city said, New York said yes, then they said no, Brian said no, then he said yes, you know, it goes back and forth. And meanwhile, <clears throat> meanwhile, eight months pass. And during that eight months, so much happens to the Beatles. Um, you know, some of them get married, Ringo's ha expecting a baby. Um, uh, a friend, a casual acquaintance of George and John's doses them with LSD uh, <laughs> when they don't know it and their wives. And um, it was so early on that George had never even heard of LSD, wow. you know, and John was absolutely furious. So, and from that, you know, they live, obviously live through the experience and, and um, they said that they could not even relate to Ringo and Paul after that. 
and urged them to take LSD themselves, you know, and, and Ringo was like, sure, I'll take it. But Paul was like, no, I don't know about that. And he waited months. And so hmm, the split is happening. The three mm. against one that we saw so mm. much later um, when the other three wanted to go with Alan Klein and and Paul stayed with his uh, father-in-law for management after Brian Epstein died. Um, you know, so I could actually, you know, and George and John were best friends after that, you know, and you're like, it's not Lennon and McCartney, it's Harrison and <laughs> Lennon. You know, so I just learned so much. It was so amazing. And uh, I, uh, you know, it's just, you know, here I, I'm like 10 or 12 during this time, not even knowing any anything women smoking pot with bob dylan you know all <laughs> kinds of crazy stuff going on and we were so innocent and naive and they were so well insulated um you know and at a time today where security is enormous mm -hmm. for these stars they had you know three guys protecting them and look how well protected they were you know not not with people walking into their dressing room but again whew, much more innocent time no one sure. wanted to do them harm that came later but um uh you know the the life they were leading backstage and off stage was very different than what was represented Mm. Well, well mm. as we've discussed, you're you're a well-known Hollywood historian. You've been featured and the go-to person for many shows. You've been on CNN, History Channel, AE, and so many more to discuss all things Hollywood. How did that start coming about for you? And when did you notice that you were getting lots of calls about it? Uh kind of when I guess kind of when mysteries and scandals came out on the E channel. <laughs> mm. um, they uh, they told me <clears throat> that their show was based on my first book. Um, and they did cover almost everyone in, in my first book. So they always had me on a lot. And there weren't a lot of women historians at that time. So it was a break uh, for me um, because they wanted to break up all the talking heads of men and male authors with um, with a female. So um, so I got invited a lot of places. <laughs> Great. <laughs> well, we know you gotta be busy as ever. We have to ask, what are you working on next? Well, I have been working on this. Uh, well, there's two things. One, because you're a fan of Hollywood Haunted, um, I finally got the rights back to that book. Oh. And um, and there were uh, at least half a dozen chapters that were cut from the book before it was published. Um, and it was only for, for um, size and money, not because they weren't good chapters. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm reissuing it um, within the next couple of months, Hollywood Haunted 
the author's cut. Oh, awesome. <laughs> and I'm putting, putting back all those chapters that were cut and reworking the book a little bit. So that's been fun. And then, um, and I worked on that book with a wonderful historian named Mark Wanamaker, who has a world-class photo archive. And for decades, he and I have planned to do a book on the history of the Sunset Strip. Mm. Um, we have decided we're all we've both been so busy and it's been such an enormous task um to do that book but uh this is the year so um, that's the next project well Lori, we want to thank you so much for coming on i mean we're we have so many we're only scratching the surface so yeah i mean you're welcome back anytime because we we have so many things that we'd love to cover with you but it's been a real pleasure to have you on here for you know we i was excited about this all week about uh asking oh, all these so questions <laughs> oh thank you you're so kind and uh i loved your questions and um really got me thinking and so many things i haven't been asked about uh, for a long time. So that was fun. I really enjoyed it. Well, that's great. No, thank you again. Uh, this has been Pop Culture Retro. I'm Jonathan Rosen, along with Ike Eisenman. And again, a very special thanks to Lori Jacobson. Go buy her book and please subscribe. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Retro, where no one was hurt during the making of this podcast. 